Your volunteer readers, Angela Kreihel and Donica Conge. From the July edition of Toronto Life magazine, here's an article written by Barrett Hooper titled, Bad Out of Hell. Bad Out of Hell, All Eyes Are on Rizwan Boom Boom Chima, How a Pakistani Refugee and Former Taxi Driver Became the Talk of the Cricket World. In March, just days before the Canadian national cricket team was supposed to fly to Sri Lanka for a month-long training camp in preparation for its biggest tournament of the year, it looked like its star player, Rizwan Chima, would not be going. Chima is a refugee from Pakistan, and the government's position was cut and dried. Because he had not yet received his landed immigrant status, if he left the country, he would not be allowed back in. The tournament was the International Cricket Council's World Cup qualifier, in which 12 countries ranked at the associate level, one notch below the top dogs at the elite test level, would compete for a spot at the 2011 World Cup. Held once every four years, the World Cup Championship is the third largest sporting event on the planet, watched by more than 2 billion TV viewers around the world. Canada has never done well at the World Cup, one win and 12 losses in three appearances, but with Rizwan Chima on the team, expectations for the qualifier were high. Cricket Canada, the sport's governing body, spent months gently yet persistently lobbying Jason Kenney, the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, to step in so that Chima could attend the camp and tournament. Finally, after dozens of letters and phone calls, helped by a newspaper story that caught the attention of senior officials in the department, Chima was granted a special travel visa. Though cricket may not be as popular here as it is in other countries, Toronto, with its large expat South Asian and Caribbean communities, is the epicenter of the sport in North America. The Toronto and District Cricket Association, the largest amateur league on the continent, consists of 92 teams and more than 1,300 players, with matches playing on 29 fields across the GTA. The majority of our national team is drawn from the ranks of the TDCA, immigrant players born and raised in such cricket superpowers as India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, England, and Australia. Chima is the TDCA's brightest star, a former cab driver with a knack for knocking the snot out of the ball. A month shy of turning 31, an age when most top-ranked players are at their peak, Chima is a surprising success story, having only recently rediscovered the sport after immigrating to Toronto nearly eight years ago. In his short time on the national team, he has attracted significant international attention, not just from fans but from scouts representing foreign teams. Just when he is about to secure landed immigrant status, Chima could be lured back to South Asia to play in the big leagues. Cricket isn't everybody's cup of chai. It's a mannered, gentlemanly pursuit governed by rules so specific and so arcane that it's no wonder they're called laws. Yet, for all its stuffiness and enduring formality, some aspects of the game are remarkably carefree. There are no rules dictating the exact size or shape of the playing field, for instance, resulting in matches contested on squares, circles, and ovals of varying dimensions. And it possesses a touch of the ridiculous with its rather Susian terminology, dibbly, dobbly, dozera, googly, and games that can last for days and still result in a draw. Although hundreds of runs may be scored in a single game, cricket can still seem like baseball on Valium. There are batters, called batsmen, and pitchers, called bowlers, who try to get the batsmen out or dismiss them before they can score any runs. 
The batsman, meanwhile, must protect three little sticks called the wicket from being hit by the ball. Home runs are called sixes and worth six runs. Doubles are called fours. There aren't any bases; just two ends of a twenty-meter-long rectangular infield or pitch, also sometimes called a wicket, that the batsman must run between after they hit the ball. Each trip, bat firmly in hand, is one run. In addition to the bowler, there are ten fielders, a catcher called a wicketkeeper, and nine others scattered about playing positions with such names as silly point, leg gully, extra cover, and third slip. And while the ball is about the size and hardness of a baseball and travels just as fast, only the wicketkeeper wears gloves, big pillowy ones that make him look like Mickey Mouse. Games are divided into innings, always plural for no obvious reason. Each side plays one innings or two, depending on the game. Innings are divided into overs, consisting of six pitches or deliveries. There are several types of cricket matches, all of varying lengths. A test match can last as long as five days, during which a single at bat can take several hours, becoming a test of concentration for the players and bladder for the fans. Shorter games, called one-day internationals, last about seven hours or 50 overs each side. The recently created and highly popular 2020 match is the cricket equivalent of a Michael Bay movie, a TV-friendly, offence-intensive contest consisting of 20 overs per inning, which takes about three hours to complete. All of which might explain why cricket isn't more popular here. I met Chima at a one-bedroom apartment in a high-rise at Kennedy and Shepherd. That he refers to as the clubhouse. The place is sparsely furnished, with only a couple of couches, a TV, and a wall of plaques and trophies, declaring Chima man of the match for this game or that. When he's not playing for Team Canada, Chima captains a team in the TDCA called the PCBs, which used to stand for Popeyes Cricket Boys until the fast food chain pulled its sponsorship. Now Chima says the name stands for Pakistani Cricket Boys. Since most of the players are originally from Pakistan, the apartment is the PCB's gathering place. Other TDCA teams keep similar apartments or houses. This is where we hang out when we're not playing, says Chima. It's where we dissect games, watch cricket, talk cricket, eat and drink cricket. It also doubles as a temporary lodging for players who are new to the city. It's hard to adjust to an entirely new way of life. Cricket provides something familiar, a comfort, says Chima. We become like a family, and that helps to make everything else a little easier. The apartment's lone resident at the time of my visit was Rao Javed, a 23-year-old all-rounder from Lahore, who moved here to attend university and, of course, play cricket. He watched a live Indian Premier League match on his laptop while Chima and I talked. A row of bats stood at attention near the door. Chima flashed a Donny Osmond smile as he handed me one, pointing to the word stamped on the bat's face. Used and recommended by Rizwan Chima. Beneath that was his signature. These are made exclusively for me, he said. The Chima bats are produced by a Pakistani company, M. B. Malik Sports, for the North American market, where the cricketer is already well known. Chima was born and raised in a devoutly Muslim and cricket-worshipping family in Gujarat, an agriculture-based city near Lahore, the cultural capital of Pakistan. His father grew rice and sugarcane. Chima and his six siblings played cricket. I think I first held a bat when I was two, he says. 
He dreamed of playing professionally, but gave up on the idea of making it a career when he fled his country in 1999 to escape sectarian unrest between Sunni and Shiite Muslims. The Sunni constitute 75% of Pakistan's Muslim population, the Shia 20. Chima is Shia. Religion divided everyone. Cricket fans would often fight in the stands at games, especially if a Shia player like Chima did well, and sometimes the players themselves would clash. It's an unsettling thing to see people you know, sometimes even your teammates, look at you with distrust. Last March, the violence once again spilled over into cricket when the visiting Sri Lankan national team was attacked by Islamic militants while en route to a match in downtown Lahore. Five police officers and a bus driver were killed. Seven cricketers and a coach were injured. Chima did not move immediately to Toronto after leaving Pakistan. He spent a couple of years living with an older sister and her family in Long Island until 9/11 made staying in the U.S. less inviting. He eventually moved to Toronto in the fall of 2001, knowing nothing of the city other than it was Canada's largest. He arrived alone with only a couple of suitcases, a few hundred dollars, and the name of a friend of a friend who might be able to put him up for a few days. I was scared, he says, but I had no choice. It was better to be scared here than be scared back there. Once in Toronto, he got a job at a convenience store and then drove a taxi. The latter, because it allowed him to make his own schedule, giving him time to devote to cricket. I hadn't played in years, and I missed it. He says, "I wanted to see if I could still do it." He joined his first Canadian cricket team almost by accident. He showed up at Sunnybrook Park to watch a game, only to find it cancelled, and a team practicing instead. Chima asked if he could hit a few balls, and after blasting a few sixes, was asked by the coach to join the team. More than just a slugger, Chima is an all-rounder capable of playing multiple positions, including a bowler. His presence in the TDCA was immediately felt. It was like he came out of nowhere. Suddenly, there was this great new batsman among us, says Pabudu Desanayaki, Team Canada's head coach and a former Sri Lankan national player. I made sure to keep my eye on him to see how he developed. In his second full season in 2005, Chima was named Canadian Cricketer of the Year. In 2007, he stroked a pair of centuries, 100 or more runs in a single at bat, including an incredible 161 runs on just 61 balls. He's a fearless hitter, very aggressive, says Desanayaki. He's got such confidence. He believes he can hit sixes off any bowler, and he can. Players have to compete at the local level for at least four years before they can qualify for the national team. So Chima wasn't invited to join Team Canada until last summer. Once on, he wasted no time tearing apart the opposition. It didn't matter that it was the first time he had faced Test-level bowlers who throw upward of 95 miles an hour. Rizwan is not like the old-fashioned style of batsmen who are more technical, says Javed. He is more offence-minded, more focused on hitting the ball. Than how he looks doing it, he can be intimidating to bowlers. Chima showed just how fearless he was when he played Pakistan, which has the best bowling attack in the world. Before stepping in against Shwab Akhtar, the Nolan Ryan of cricket, he told his teammates, "I'll handle him. I'll hit him six," which is exactly what he proceeded to do. He earned the moniker Boom Boom from his teammates after another famous Pakistani slugger, Shahid Boom Boom Afridi, and hundreds of autograph-seeking fans. At the qualifiers in Johannesburg, Chima and the rest of Team Canada squared off against Ireland, Kenya, the Netherlands, and Scotland, among others. They finished in second place behind Ireland, 
As expected, Canada's fortunes turned largely on the strength of Chima's swing. When he stumbled in the final game against Ireland, the rest of the batting order crumbled. Cricket Canada's president Ben Senek says Chima is not only vital to the team's success but to the continued development of the sport in this country. Despite his contributions to the national sporting scene, Chima's travel problems aren't over. The special visa he was granted in March has expired. He is anxiously awaiting another one so he can join the team for a series in the Netherlands and Scotland in July, followed by the 2020 World Cup qualifier in the United Arab Emirates in the fall. There seems to be so much paperwork and red tape to being allowed to represent the country, says Chima. He's hoping to receive his landed immigrant status in the next few months. Meanwhile, Chima is already looking beyond Team Canada and the World Cup. Scouts from the lucrative Indian Premier League have been following him for some time and were especially attentive during the qualifier in South Africa. The IPL, a two-year professional 2020 league, is flush with cash and expects to generate more than one billion dollars in revenue over the next ten years. As in the NBA or NHL. IPL players are treated like rock stars, earning million-dollar contracts and million-dollar endorsement deals. When the 18 league expands to 12 next year, Chima is confident he'll be signed by one of them. My father always wanted me to play professional cricket, and now that is happening, he says. Chima's success on the international stage puts Team Canada in a troubling position. Placing all their hopes on one franchise player is exactly what the team wants to avoid. Desanayaki and members of Cricket Canada speak optimistically about Canada being elevated from associate to Test status in the next five to eight years. For that to happen, they need players like Chima to stick around. I want to build the maple leaf in the heart of every player, says Desanayaki. I tell the players, you can come from any part of the world, but we're from Canada now. Chima appears to be listening to his coach's advice. He says that even if he signs with the IPL, his first commitment will be to Team Canada. As in soccer, cricket players are released from their professional squads to rejoin their respective national teams for international tournaments, and Chima says he fully expects to represent his adopted country for years to come. Canada is my country, my priority, he says. These are comforting words for Team Canada, but if and when Chima is lured to India to play professionally. He will likely face pressure to play for his home country of Pakistan. Although it's a far cry from playing overseas in the biggest and most profitable league in the world, for now, Chima is happy to be competing in a peaceful place with players from various backgrounds and religious denominations. He's also happy to be making a living off his favorite game. He no longer works in a convenience store or drives a taxi. As of this year, he is one of seven national team members on salary with Cricket Canada. Earning roughly thirty thousand dollars last year, he married Fuzia Khan, a Canadian citizen who also immigrated from Pakistan, and who manages a gas station near their home in Woodbridge, just a few minutes from the nearest cricket pitch. She didn't know I was a cricket star when we met at a party two years ago. Chima says with a broad smile, but she knows now. Judging by his confidence, it won't be long before the rest of the world knows it too. That article, written by Barrett Hooper, titled "Bad Out of Hell." Was from the July edition of Toronto Life Magazine. You're listening to In Depth on Voice Print. John Geddes is the author of this article from the June edition of Maclean's. The title is "No Way to Run a Recession." No way to run a recession. The bad news piles up, and the stimulus cash is slow coming. By John Geddes.
If there's one place the federal government might want to showcase its push to spend billions to stimulate the economy, Vancouver would be it. With the 2010 Winter Olympics coming up fast, the city is about to come under intense international scrutiny. The recession has idled many British Columbia building trades workers, who were until recently kept busy by a booming West Coast construction sector. Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson says he's ready to put many of them back to work on municipal projects, but hasn't won approval yet for a single cent of a promised gusher of federal infrastructure spending. Funds the Conservatives vowed would flow fast after their budget more than four months ago. We'd love to put those dollars to work creating jobs and investing in our infrastructure. Robertson told McLean's, "None have arrived yet." Gripes like Robertson's just aren't fair," say Ottawa's frontline economic ministers. Transport Minister John Baird, who's responsible for the federal infrastructure plan, argues that he's approving projects ten times faster than any similar program in history, and that might well be true. But the standard he's up against isn't past performance. It's the benchmark set in Finance Minister Jim Flaherty's urgently worded January 27th budget. Measures to support the economy, the budget declared, must begin within the next 120 days to be most effective. Then again, that was the same budget that projected a 33.7 billion dollar deficit, and that figure, as Flaherty admitted in a late May bombshell, has ballooned in four short months to more than 50 billion. It seems positive measures are taking longer than hoped to materialize, while the bad news is piling up even faster than feared. Is this any way to run a recession? The psychic shock of the massive new deficit guesstimate, combined with crumbling over the pace of stimulus spending, has set the federal Tories back on their heels. After Prime Minister Stephen Harper cavalierly dismissed a chance of a recession in last fall's campaign, and Flaherty projected ongoing surpluses in his weirdly rosy economic update soon after, the Tories could hardly afford more self-inflicted blows to their. Economic credibility, but inflict them they have. Flaherty protests, not unreasonably, that there was no way he could have known back in January that Ottawa's share of bailing out General Motors and Chrysler was going to run about seven billion dollars more than he'd banked on. But what about the other nine billion dollars or so that his projection was off? That's mostly a result of bleak economic news, including lower tax revenues and higher employment insurance payouts. Given the way the world was spinning into a deep recession by budget time, Flaherty could have played it prudent then, says Simon Fraser University professor Richard Harris. They would have been better served by offering a wider range on the deficit, Harris said, and stressing that because the global recession was so unusual, the projections were less reliable. If the deficit bet was ill-advised, all the government's aggressive talk about rushing out stimulus spending now seems even more reckless. Not only did Flaherty set that 120-day benchmark, which one bank economist called a joke, he stressed the need for spending to come in 2009, not in 2010.
Stimulus for next year is not what we want, Flaherty declared on February 25th. We need it now, this year, yet most of it will almost certainly come in 2010. Asked about how much of the key $4 billion infrastructure stimulus fund will flow in 2009, Baird answered, I would say beginning this year at least 40% of it. Few private sector economists expect the main impact of the budget's core stimulus package to be felt in 2009. It's not going to do what the initial intent was, said RBC Financial Group Chief Economist Craig Wright which was to stimulate growth this year. Still, even economists who think the Conservatives misplayed setting up and selling the plan aren't pessimistic about its substance. Shocking as the number sounded when Flaherty first uttered it, the new $50 billion forecast isn't panicking private sector analysts. It's a record spill of red ink in absolute terms, but still smaller as a share of the economy than Ottawa's fiscal shortfalls of the late 1980s and early 1990s, and proportionately less than current U.S. and European deficits. Yes, $50 billion is a big number, Wright said. It's less worrying when you look at Canadian history, when you look around the globe. And Richard Harris says complaints from the likes of Vancouver's mayor don't prove the infrastructure scheme has been hopelessly botched. Typically, says Harris, who is currently a visiting scholar at the C.D. Howe Institute, stimulus spending takes six months to a year and a half to make its way into the real economy. Given that this could be a prolonged slump, spending even on that pace will still be more than welcome if it takes well into next year to translate into construction. Stimulus spending, he said, could still turn out to be quite important. Taking a clear snapshot of the whole federal infrastructure plan is almost impossible. It's a $12 billion moving target with several distinct parts run by various departments. It's rolling out at different speeds in every province, according to unique deals between Ottawa and each provincial government. As McLean's went to press this week, Baird said decisions were eminent on applications for 2,700 Ontario projects, which could tap $2 billion in federal money. A big Ontario announcement would make the whole program look more relevant. Still, even Baird isn't talking mainly about shovels in the ground now or this summer. I think come the fall, he said, there's going to be a hell of a lot of construction going on around the country. In an interview, Flaherty pointed to quick action on other aspects of his stimulus plan, including the $2 billion fund for college and university projects. Campus construction wish lists have been funded at a much faster pace than municipal projects, partly because they don't require three levels of government to agree to chip in. Flaherty said he's been keeping up the pressure to spend. I've been an alarmist within the government in terms of demanding urgency, he said. There was some resistance, government being government. Some bureaucrats, he noted, are worried about misspending being caught two or three years from now. There's no question that rushed approval carries a risk of bondugals. Even as opposition critics slam what they call slow action by the government so far, Baird said 1,200 
infrastructure projects worth $3.6 billion were approved between Budget Day and June 1st. There is much more to come on everything from a half-billion-dollar fund for recreation infrastructure to another half-billion for First Nations public works. It's a gargantuan effort, he said. Yet it might not be enough. In a recent report, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development said the world economy will contract by 2.7% this year, the worst crisis since the Great Depression. The OECD singled out Canada along with Germany as a country that should do more to stimulate its economy since its government can afford it. And given steep losses across the 30 rich OECD nations, including about 300,000 shed in Canada since the fall financial crisis struck, Harris said more government spending might turn out to be badly needed. If we don't get some signs soon of employment stabilizing in the OECD, he said, we're going to need a bigger stimulus package. The prospect of still more deficit spending is a daunting one. Yet while the Tories struggled to keep up with the still unfolding recession, some economic policy experts are turning their attention to longer-term implications of this historic downturn. Avram Lazar, who was a senior federal bureaucrat before becoming president of the Forest Products Association of Canada seven years ago, says nobody was ready for the radical shift in economic decision-making that followed last fall's plunge into recession. The whole global economy, Lazar says, has made a step from market-driven to government-driven in the last three or four months that really no one had anticipated and no one has really acknowledged. A key question, he said, is how nimbly governments, including Canada's, will extricate themselves from roles they've stepped into during the crisis. Lazar contends the recession is an opportunity to spur real reforms to boost Canadian competitiveness, the subject of more talk than action during a long, prosperous stretch going back to the mid-1990s. First, we had the cheap dollars, so the economy was doing well that way, and government didn't feel any need to make reform, he said. Then we had the petrodollar, and government didn't feel the need to make any reform. As many have noted, Canada went into the recession in an unusually strong position. Yet deep, lasting damage from the downturn remains a possibility. One of Canada's long-standing economic weaknesses is low private sector research and development spending. Now two of our top six R&D spenders face highly doubtful futures. Nortel because it's in bankruptcy protection and Atomic Energy Canada Limited because the federal government has put it up for sale. Senior voices inside government are pleading for attention not just to this quarter's numbers, but to Canada's prospects beyond the recession. Rob Wright, Flaherty's top official as Deputy Finance Minister, gives the impression that sort of thing is a hard sell. It's not good enough for us to say we were better placed going into this and we'll coast through on the fumes of that and we'll survive it, Wright told a public policy forum conference in Ottawa this week. We have to use our advantage to come out even stronger in this new world order. And we should start thinking now of how to do that.
It's hard to argue with a pitch for thinking long term. For now, though, the government seems fully occupied trying to regain control of the message about how it's managing through tough times. That was an article by John Geddes from the June edition of Maclean's. It was titled "No Way to Run a Recession." Your volunteer readers have been Angela Cryhill and Donica Conge. Voice Prints in Depth will return with more feature articles after the break. <laughs> 